When you go deep on a vertical, there is huge opportunity to expand wallet share and expand your average revenue per customer over time. And furthermore, I think what's become really clear over the years is that you can drive much more efficient customer acquisition economics in a vertical play versus a horizontal play. That's Jack Newton, co-founder and CEO of Clio, a company that's pioneering SaaS for the legal industry. Jack is a cloud visionary. He recognized the importance of vertical SaaS early on and went all in on building the legal tech sector. Now, 14 years later, Clio is a market leader. And in April of 2021, the company became a newly minted unicorn with a valuation of $1.6 billion. CEO of a billion dollar company is just one of Jack's accomplishments. In 2017, he was named Ernst & Young's software as a service entrepreneur. And in 2020, he was named one of Canada's most admired CEOs. He's also the author of The Client-Centered Law Firm, a top 20 legal book on Amazon. Today, Jack shares his insights on what it takes to build a successful software company and how to drive SaaS adoption, especially in a sector like the legal field, which has been slow to change. This is Daniel Sachs, co-CEO of AppDirect, and it's time to decode vertical SaaS. Welcome to Decoding Digital, a podcast for innovators looking to thrive in the digital economy. I'm your host, Daniel Sachs, and I'll sit down with other founders, CEOs, and changemakers to decode the trends that are transforming the way we work. Let's decode. Jack, welcome to Decoding Digital. Thanks for having me. For sure. Before we dive into the interview, I want to congratulate you on your recent funding announcement. So big news, Clio reached a $1.6 billion valuation, giving you unicorn statics. So big congrats. Thank you. And I know you were actually one of the first founders to have a vision for the potential of vertical SaaS. And and Clio is specifically focused on the legal sector. And obviously, vertical SaaS has become a huge category. And there's a huge transformation coming about in bringing the legal industry to the cloud. So tell us what the founding story was and how you got Clio started. Yeah, so way back in 2007, and that is truly the early days of SaaS in general, you know, Salesforce was still early in its growth journey back then. And what my co-founder Ryan Govro and I saw at that moment was the fact that the cloud was going to change everything. What was really obvious to us was that this was a once in a lifetime kind of opportunity to catch a wave of digital transformation that you're lucky if it comes along once or maybe twice in your lifetime and that it was going to radically transform almost every industry out there. And with that conviction, we became what I describe sometimes as a two hammers looking for a nail. Like what we really understood, I think deeply was the transformative impact that the cloud was going to have and then went and turned our attention to what industry do we think we could apply this transformation to and have some really profound impact. And we were looking for an industry that was not just a great business opportunity, but that we thought there would be potentially a great mission-driven opportunity to help drive transformation in that industry as well. And thanks to some work that Ryan was doing on the legal side, we pretty quickly honed in on legal as being one of those industries that was ripe for transformation. 
and was in particular ripe for transformation by being transformed by the internet, where if you look at the legal industry, I think this was very true in 2007. And frankly, it was still mostly true in the year 2020 as well. The legal industry is one of the last major industries to be fundamentally transformed by technology. And furthermore, one of the last industries to be fundamentally transformed by the internet. And if you look at the way a lawyer was practicing law in the year 2020, it wasn't all that different than the way they were practicing law in 1980, you know, with the benefit of 40 years of technology and transformation in other industries. So what we saw pretty quickly and honed in on the legal industry as an opportunity was let's catch this massive technology opportunity in the form of the cloud and bring that to legal with the underlying thesis that what would finally unlock the massive opportunity to transform legal with technology was the ease of accessing cloud-based technology that the traditional on-prem server-based software distribution model was so high friction that it never caught hold in legal. But with the benefit of the cloud and that lower barrier to entry, both from a deployment standpoint and a cost standpoint, would we potentially be able to unlock that opportunity in the legal industry? So we started building Clio in 2007. I'm a computer science guy by training. Ryan had a background in technology and was working on his MBA when we founded the company. And we rolled up our sleeves and started doing everything, building the software, doing the marketing, doing the initial sales, and launched the product officially in 2008 and cut to 13 years later. And Clio is an almost 600-person organization, growing extremely rapidly, operating out of five offices worldwide. And as you mentioned, just achieved unicorn status with this new $1.6 billion US valuation and some pretty amazing investors coming on board to support us on our next stage of the journey. Yeah, it's incredible. I remember in 2009 when we were starting AppDirect, one of the first things that we did was create a list of the SaaS companies we could find out there based on category. And I remember it had everyone from Box or a Dropbox or a DocuSign, MailChimp, FreshBooks. They were all in their infancy. And the common thing is that they were all horizontal. The aggregate market value of that list then was maybe sub $5 billion. It's now probably over half a trillion. And it's funny because I think you were ahead of your time. Did you kind of see it at the time as saying like, look, there's going to be SaaS for every vertical, so I'm going to pick legal because that's the best vertical? Or did you kind of solve a pain point that you identified for the legal industry because it was slower to kind of transform and adopt technology? Yeah, it's a great question. I do think we're really early to the vertical SaaS party. And it's so interesting even looking at those first years of fundraising in 2009, 2010, I could tell in the first 10 seconds of a VC meeting whether this was going to be a no or a yes and let's learn more. Because back in those days, what was an immediate end of the discussion for a lot of VCs was the TAM. You know, we've got a million lawyers in the US. There's 5 million lawyers worldwide. And for a lot of VCs, when you walk through those numbers, like I said, you could almost see some glaze over, you know, 10 seconds into the presentation because they've immediately got TAM concerns and they're out. And what we found fairly early in our journey, and it was around 2013, 2014, was that there was a growing number of VCs that were building conviction around the fact that vertical SaaS actually had not just an ability to build a meaningful market, but when you go deep on a vertical, there is 
huge opportunity to expand wallet share and expand your average revenue per customer over time. And furthermore, I think what's become really clear over the years is that you can drive much more efficient customer acquisition economics in a vertical play versus a horizontal play. And I think those are some of the things that way back in 2007, 2008, Ryan and I understood intuitively, maybe that we could go really deep on a vertical like legal. And even though on the surface, it looks like a niche opportunity almost, if you provide true and deep value to that vertical, you're going to have an unreasonable right to win categorically in that vertical. And I think in many verticals, and we've seen other companies like Service Titan, for example, really prove out this hypothesis in a big way in the field services industry. I think we've seen Clio prove it out in legal. And you can point to examples in almost every other vertical is that customers really want a vendor of record as much as possible. They want to be able to buy all of their technology, all of their services from one vendor. And that was an early bet we made on with Clio in the legal vertical, this bet that there's a strong preference on the customer side to have a single vendor and a unified experience. And even though integrations between products are possible, at the end of the day, there's very few customers that want to figure out how do I cobble together 15 different products into one through a number of integrations and you know maybe a bunch of duct tape when they can have one cohesive experience in one product. And that's really, I think, the heart of our thesis for what ended up being the huge legal opportunity. And I believe the other hypothesis we had that ended up proving correct was that the cloud was, in fact, an enabling technology to unlock this previously very low technology adoption industry. So clearly, digital transformation is hard and you had this vision But take me through what the lawyer's life was pre-Clio and then the effort that you had to go through to get them on and now their life today. It's a great question. And this was the challenge in 2008 and it's still the challenge today. But there's a lot of lawyers that will use pen and paper and they will use some aggregate of Microsoft Outlook, Excel and Word to manage every day-to-day aspect of their law firm. and They'll take time records, time slips that they've literally recorded on pieces of paper, input those into Excel, take the Excel sheet, go and try to input it into Microsoft Word and create an invoice for their client. And we talked to some law firms that literally spend four or five days at the beginning of every month where their law firm basically grinds to a halt, collating all these paper documents, going through this Excel-based process putting these invoices in Word, going through the iterations of the pre-bills and finally getting these bills out the door. And it's just mind-blowing the amount of manual effort that is going on in the industry. And like I said, we're still early innings in driving this digital transformation in legal. There's still a lot of law firms that operate that way. So really, it's a matter of getting in front of these customers and letting them know there's a better way. You need a distributed way of working. You need to leverage the cloud will talk to these stakeholders and it could be the receptionist, it could be the paralegal, it could be the lawyer themselves. We explain what kind of value Clio can provide to them and you just see the light bulb go off. You can hear the excitement in their voice when they understand the kind of value that Clio can offer their law firm. It's very powerful. And I now know that lawyers see you as a thought leader educating them on how to make this digital transformation. 
And I know last year you published a book called The Client-Centered Law Firm. Can you give some more context as to why you wrote the book and some of the takeaways? Yeah, so it's interesting. Around 10 years into this journey of building Clio, I started to feel like I've had thousands and thousands of conversations with legal professionals at the best run law firms in the world and started to feel like I had the kind of perspective that maybe a McKinsey Consulting or a Boston Consulting Group has on businesses where they talk to the best of the best and they start to understand what the best practices are and what set them apart from their peers. And I felt like this perspective I was starting to form on the legal industry and the opportunity was similar. And my takeaway, what I'd extracted from those thousands and thousands of conversations was a few things. One, lawyers go through law school and learn how to become amazing lawyers. But over the course of their three years of law school, they learn virtually nothing about building a business or being an entrepreneur. They don't learn how to develop a product. They don't learn how to market. They don't learn how to even manage cash flow. So there's a huge risk for the average lawyer that if they graduate from law school and they go out and hang a shingle and run their own law firm as a solo, as 50% of all lawyers do, or they go form a small law firm with a handful of other colleagues, and that's around 80% of the legal market is either solo or firms of less than 10 lawyers, they're going to be set up to really struggle. And only if you're joining a big firm and benefiting from the machinery of that big firm will you be set up in a way that your pure legal knowledge will help you succeed. So this key insight for me was lawyers need a bit of a handbook on how to thrive as a lawyer and how to be a successful entrepreneur. But unfortunately, precedent is also applied really strongly in the business of law, where lawyers feel like the only way you can run a law firm is in the same way it's been run in the past by other lawyers. And you look at the pervasiveness of the billable hour model, for example, something as straightforward as that. Most lawyers charge for their time by the hour. On the other hand, there's virtually no clients that want to buy legal services by the hour. You know, and other professions like accounting have shifted fulsomely away from billable hour to value-based billing and fixed fee billing and billing based on outcomes. And there's been an enormous amount of friction in that shift in legal, partially because of, I think, the inertia that this precedent thinking drives in the legal profession. So what I tried to distill in my book is a way of proposing a pretty radical shift in how lawyers think about delivering legal services. And instead of thinking about delivering legal services in the traditional way, which I would describe as a lawyer-centric way of delivering legal services, and even if you look at something as foundational as the billable hour model, I think is a great example of a very lawyer-centric concept. It's good for lawyers. It helps protect lawyers' profitability. It helps protect lawyers' downside risk. But it's not at all good for the client, and it is not client-centered. And what I posit in this book is there's a whole new way of thinking about legal services in a way that is client-centered. And if you embrace this client-centered thinking, you embrace this new way of thinking about the way you can design and price and package your legal services, there's an enormous opportunity to drive massive competitive differentiation and to tap into what I describe as the latent legal market. And the latent legal market is what I've referred to as a portion of the market that is not able to access legal services. 
around 77% of consumers that have legal issues any given year do not see those legal issues resolved by a lawyer. You've maybe heard the term the access to justice gap. And that's really the access to justice gap in a nutshell is there's a very small minority of legal issues that actually see resolution through lawyers and the legal system. 77% of legal issues are not resolved by lawyers. And that latent legal market is something that can be unlocked through client-centered thinking. And this book, The Client-Centered Law Firm that I wrote, is really a handbook and a playbook for how to think innovatively about designing your legal services, how to think like an entrepreneur, how to build empathy for your clients, and how to rethink legal service delivery in a way that is better for consumers and helps consumers see better legal outcomes, is better for lawyers in that it helps make lawyers more successful and more profitable, and better for access to justice in that if we actually execute on this vision of the client-centered law firm, we're going to help bridge that access to justice gap and we're going to help deliver legal services to that vast latent legal market that is currently underserved. Let's shift to your personal psychology, right? Because you've said that the legal industry is the last major industries that resist digital transformation, but that must mean you get a lot of no's and a lot of people who say you're crazy. Right. Like, how do you deal with that? Yeah. For one, I describe myself as a pathological optimist. So even if I hear no all day long, I'm still going to be optimistic that there's a yes right around the corner. So I think that resilience is really important and that Embedded optimism is really important in navigating all the no's you're going to hear. And it's been said and commented on many times that many of the best startup ideas sound crazy to start. And some investors talk about using a yardstick now. You know, how crazy does the idea sound? And if it doesn't sound crazy enough, they're almost not interested in it because it's not transformative enough. And certainly back in 2008, when I was walking around these legal conferences talking about the idea of storing your data in the cloud, it was a polarizing concept. And I had deep conviction about back in 2008 and still have today is the idea that the average solo or small firm lawyer is further ahead storing their data in the cloud than they are trying to manage their own on-premise system and trying to keep that system secure and up-to-date and that was a controversial opinion in 2008, but I actually think it's probably almost generally accepted wisdom today. But I caught a lot of flack for that perspective of that opinion back in 2008, 2009, 2010. I had lawyers calling me and Ryan and Cleo outright irresponsible for even allowing lawyers to store their data in the cloud. How dare we kind of conversations. And I think you, to navigate all of that to your question around mindset, I think number one, you do need to have optimism. You do need to have deep conviction that you're right. And you also need to be able to persuade. It's not just hearing the no and then walking away, but we listened to the reasons that people supported the no with and then thought, how do we tackle these? How do we block by block unpack this resistance and get to yes? And I'll give you a really concrete example of that. The number one thing we heard over the course of 2008 and 2009 was this concern about, is it ethical for lawyers to store their data in the cloud? Is this even allowed from a compliance perspective from the state bar, for example, that they're licensed to? 
And we realized really quickly that we can either get dragged along by this discussion or we can try to lead it. And we said, if we can lead it, we're going to be able to lead the discussion to where we want it to go, which is this conclusion that storing your data in the cloud is actually more secure than storing it on premise. And so what we started doing was educating the industry. We started writing white papers. We started giving talks at every conference we could get a speaking slot at. We started lobbying directly with these state bar associations to get ethics opinions that were positive and affirmative about the fact that storing your data in the cloud was ethically acceptable. And we started to see a huge amount of success there and became, over time, thought leaders on this topic where we were invited to speak at the biggest conferences in legal about the security and ethics of cloud computing for lawyers and around why this was acceptable And really, in hindsight now, we're referred to as the people and the company that helped drive this transformation in legal and the adoption of cloud technology in legal. So I think listening to the no and having conviction that that person is wrong is really important. But then the onus is on you to almost persuade them that they're wrong. And that might be a very, very long game to get there. But that's the long game we played. And like I said, 13 years later, In the legal industry, it's finally generally accepted wisdom that the cloud is acceptable for lawyers to use. And we're even shifting into a new world where it's almost viewed as a competitive disadvantage if you're not leveraging the cloud in some way as a law firm. I definitely think you've pinpointed one of the key things that we observe, which is change is constant. People need to adapt. And if they don't, they're going to have a challenge in the digital divide. And that became very prevalent in COVID with examples like restaurants or other establishments, if you didn't have delivery or a digital footprint, then you'd struggle and you'd be forced to immediately digital transform. With Clio, did you have a similar impact in COVID or how did COVID impact your business and the legal community in general? Yeah, great question. And yeah, like many other industries, we saw a pretty profound and a pretty rapid shift in how lawyers needed to run their practice as soon as COVID hit. What we've seen with COVID is 10 years of digital transformation and legal or more, I would argue, compressed into 10 or 12 months. You know, it's really been that scale of change. Our product roadmap, for example, is the product roadmap we would have been thinking about in the year 2030, really. And now it's the product roadmap we're thinking about for the year 2020. These kinds of changes, especially like an industry like legal that is fairly slow to evolve, They wouldn't have played out over the natural course of events. We really needed this crucible that ended up being COVID-19 to catalyze a lot of this change. And I think it's actually a net positive change in a lot of ways, despite the obvious huge human toll and economic hardship it's caused for many. For the legal industry, it is going to emerge, I believe, better position to thrive and better position to actually deliver legal services to more people thanks to the transformational change that COVID has helped drive. And a big part of that is around technology adoption and being able to lower the barriers to accessing legal services. And for the lawyer's side, being able to lower the cost of delivering legal services. And to just give you a really concrete example of what that looks like, one of the largest structural overhead costs any law firm has beyond its human cost of labor and staffing the law firm is the physical space, the often expensive AAA downtown office space 
that law firms invest in to most of the time impress clients, right? And what we've seen with COVID is that a lot of clients, a lot of law firms have realized we actually don't need that expensive office space anymore. We can actually deliver legal services just as well. And in fact, by a lot of measures, better over the internet with our clients sitting at home in their home office, with our lawyers sitting at home in their home office. And everyone's got the convenience of instant access to that legal advice and legal resource without all the friction of a meeting in that bricks and mortar office. And it's a pretty exciting time to be innovating in legal because it's a brave new world that's actually going to, I believe, help open up that latent legal market over time. So you talked about the last 10 years accelerating. Let's fast forward 10 years to 2030. What conviction do you have today, similar to the conviction that you had for cloud, that's going to be equally as transformative 10 years for your customers? The conviction I have for the year 2030 is that the vast majority of legal services will be delivered in that cloud-based way. That's a technology shift that Clio's hoping to enable. And the second piece that is more aspirational that I would love to help drive in the legal industry as well is a shift to a more client-centered way of delivering legal services. And that's both a technology problem and a mindset problem. We need the mindset of the legal industry to shift to this client-centered way of thinking. And the way I think about it is I want the book and other educational materials to help drive that mindset shift. But I also want Clio, the technology platform, to automatically encourage lawyers that are using it to operate in a client-centered way. I want it to almost be, call it the default way of operating a law firm. If you adopt Clio, is to be a client-centered law firm, that we make it easy and frictionless. And the software is almost opinionated in how you do things and opinionated in the sense that we think you should be client-centered and we're going to make it really easy and frictionless for you to be client-centered. And by the way, the benefits of that as a law firm are that you're going to be more profitable. You're going to have happier clients. You're going to have better outcomes for your clients. You're going to see faster growth because they're feeding into this flywheel of growth for your law firm by leaving positive reviews, by referring friends and family to you. And we want to make that, like I said, almost an automatic side effect of using Clio as being client-centered as well. So the year 2030, I hope will be a year that I can look at and say, we've made a huge amount of progress in making the legal industry both cloud-based and client-centered. Well, exciting times ahead. Really believe in that mindset change. And we look at leaders that are transforming the economy. We call them digital heroes. I think you exemplify those characteristics and congrats to you and your recent success and all the opportunity you have in the future. Thanks for joining, Jack. Thanks for having me. On the next episode of Decoding Digital. I think it's really easy to compare your chapter one to someone else's chapter 25. I think there's a comparison game we all play. It's just human psychology. It's human programming, right? It becomes overwhelming when you compare yourself to someone else. So it's just easier to do you versus you 1% better every single day. CEO of ClickFlow and host of the Leveling Up podcast, Eric Sue. Thanks for listening to Decoding Digital. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. To learn more, visit decodingdigital.com. Until next time.